Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Marine Covenant Church. Are you all doing okay so far? So far, so good. All right. Well, my name is Ben Kearns. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And um, I'm sure that you're aware, because you're a human being and you live in 2018, that our world and our country um, is increasingly more and more multicultural and more and more multi-ethnic. There's been all sorts of conversations happening around the church for 30 years now, trying to figure out how in the world do we as a church become more multicultural, more multi-ethnic. We as a church in Marin Covenant are trying to do that. Me as a person are trying to do that. And uh, I know you're thinking, nice, Ben, a nice white band and white person up here looking around. So I get we're not there yet. We're not, we're not all the way there yet, but it's a conversation that we're having. It's a conversation we're moving towards because it is our heart, is our desire that we be a church that um, when we come, we gather and we worship and we celebrate who Jesus is, that we represent more and more of the kingdom of God. And, but to go from a, a majority culture to a multi-ethnic or multi-cultural um, sort of church, it takes so much work. It is so hard. It's not something that you just wake up and it happens. Like there's, there's intentional steps that you have to go along the way. And so we're like at step one. So thanks for your patience. Um, but there's this book that I, that I just finished reading, and it's called um, The right, right Color, Wrong Culture. It's about this transition, this church in Memphis tried to do that. They were this majority white um, church in the middle of Memphis. And over the course of time, in their particular context, the, the, the community changed dramatically, and it became a majority African-American um, area of town and a majority church culture. And they're like, well, man, how in the world do we do this? So this white staff and these, these, the white elders sat around and said, okay, so what do we do? And the, the leader at the time said, hey, I, uh, there's a pastor that I worked with. He's an African-American man. He runs this consulting firm. And um, I think he should come out and meet with us and talk with us. And everyone's like, yeah, that's great. Because all these good-hearted, kind people who love God desperately want to be effective in their community, in their, in their context. And so they bring out this, uh, this African-American consultant. His name's Peter. And, um, and he's, you know, in his 60s. And he's, you know, upper class. And he dresses nice and plays golf and, you know, speaks the language of this, these elders. And uh, they start having these conversations about how to begin to move the church along. And they said, listen, we love that, but there's actually this guy in our church who's a key influence in our church. His name's Jackson, and, and you kind of need to win him over. If you win him, then we're golden. And uh, so Jackson agrees to meet with Peter, and, uh, and so they meet up at this restaurant, and they're having this great meal, and uh, they're, having, they're just having a great time interacting. And Peter's trying to feel out this guy going, hey, you know, are you someone that, that, that we can get on board with this whole multi-ethnic, multicultural thing or not? And they're having this conversation. It's going back and forth and back and forth. And they say, hey, let's keep talking, but let's go play golf because that's what these guys do in Memphis. They play golf. I never learned to play golf, so I feel I'm out of that loop. But these guys, they went and played golf. And uh, as they go and, uh, and play golf, they, they get out of the car and they start moving over. And uh, they're getting ready. They're putting the shoes on or whatever you do when you're getting ready to golf, getting ready to play golf. And uh, one of the guys in front of them yells over to Peter, the consultant, and says, hey, grab my bags, we're leaving. And he thought that uh, Peter, the consultant, was his caddy. Because in Memphis, in this golf course, every member was white and all the, all the service um, industry people were all African-American. And so this, the consultant who's black was there and he was treated like this caddy and this guy was all jerky to him and they had this weird, awkward interaction and Jackson, um, the guy whose golf club it was, was, felt kind of uncomfortable but didn't say anything. And... Um, and they kind of go their separate ways. And uh, they play golf, and then they end up going to lunch afterwards, and they, and they kind of debrief that. And, and uh, Peter said to Jackson, man, that was, that was kind of weird, don't you think? And Jackson's like, yeah, sorry, man, I didn't say anything. And, and Peter's looking around this restaurant, and he says, hey, do you know where the, he's look, he look, where the women's bathroom in this restaurant is? And he's looking around, because the men's bathroom was the nice bathroom up front, and the women's bathroom was kind of the bathroom in the back. And he's like, yeah, it's around the back. And he says, well, look at, see that bathroom over there? It's behind that wall. 
Well, that bathroom actually used to be the colored people's bathroom. And this wall was a seven-foot wall that had to be in every restaurant in the South during segregation. And Jackson's like, no way. And for Jackson, he's like, I never knew that everything about my context and the way that he lived life was just great. Um, Until this African-American consultant started going, well, look at this. Well, look at this. Well, look at this. And this whole book is just this incredible story about this transformation of this church and their leaders. But the reason why I wanted to bring that up is, A, it's something that I think we as a church need to be wrestling with more and more. But also, I think it illustrates this incredible point that all of us are nose blind to all sorts of things, that we all see the world through our particular lens. We all view race a certain way. We all view politics a certain way. We all view organic foods a certain way. We all have a way in which we go, this is how I see the world. And then everything that we see the world, everything goes in and defines how we see that. Um, I came across this horrible YouTube. Um, It was a psychologist talking about confirmation bias. And she said the way that confirmation bias works is you meet someone and it's the first impression. And how you meet someone, how you interact with someone, the very first thing that you see about them Then from that moment on, every piece of information that you gain is simply to reinforce what you originally thought about that person. So to change someone's first impression is so horrible. I'm like, I'm horrified because I do not make a good first impression. It takes people like three years to warm up to me. And now I'm like, oh, that's why. But this is a definition of confirmation bias. It says the tendency to process information by looking for or interpreting information that is consistent with one's existing beliefs. This biased approach to decision-making is largely unintentional and often results in ignoring inconsistent information. And I love this definition because it's not judgmental. It's not saying you are an idiot because you do confirmation bias. It's just the world is so complex. People are so complex. Everything is so complex that we cannot get our head around how in the world to navigate it. So we make a judgment. And then we simply take the information that helps affirm that judgment and we discard all the things that don't match with that. And what's wild is we do it with every single thing. But I thought, wouldn't it be interesting for Easter, for Lent, for this week, for this week, when we think of the, the, the recognizing the health of our souls and we want to do a spiritual inventory, what if we ask this question, do I see God at work? Because it's an interesting question to think, Do I see God at work? And there's kind of three big ways that we can approach this question. One is as a skeptic, one is a cynic, or one is a seeker. And all three of those are great stances. They're real stances. They represent most people in this room that you sit in one of those camps. But what's interesting about confirmation bias is depending on where you stand, you are going to see whatever you want to see. And so just get, if you're a cynic, then every single thing you see is going, to be, is going to affirm your cynical perspective, right? If you're a skeptic, every single thing you see is going to be from the skeptical perspective. So what if in the same way we recognize we all, we all have confirmation bias? So what if we, for a week, we tried to simply have the starting point of there's this God who's alive, who's active, who's doing things in our world and in our community, and God actively wants you to be a part of it. And so what if your starting point was, do I see God at work? And if I see God at work, what's crazy is you're actually going to start seeing those things, right? Your, 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 your bias is going to be more and more confirmed. And you're going to be like, oh, that's what stupid religious people do all the time. And maybe that is. But the truth is that's what everybody does all the time. So all I'm simply saying is what about for a week to be a silly religious person, to drink some of the Kool-Aid and say, okay, God, for one week, I'm going to start with the premise that you're alive and you're at work and where do I see you at work? 
And the way that we're going to do is we're going to look at a prime example. We're going to look at Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is one of the most famous uh, people in all of Scripture. She's by far the second most famous woman in all of Scripture behind uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, Mary Magdalene. Magdalene's not her last name. All the way through Scripture, we always get that messed up. In our, in our Western world, we think first name, last name, Jesus Christ. No, the Christ was the title, right? Um, same thing. Mary Magdalene. Magdalene um, is Mary from um, Magdala. I don't even know how to pronounce it. But it's on the, the Western... Um, side of Galilee. That's her town. That's where she's from. And, uh, and Mary Magdalene is this incredible person. She is spoken of, of 14 times in, the whole, in all the Gospels. Besides pa- Peter, James, and John, her name comes up more times in the Gospels than any other person besides those three disciples. She basically, like the, the, because of the context, they would not have said that she is one of the disciples, but she was basically a disciple. She was with Jesus through his entire ministry, experienced incredible things. And, uh, and because of most people think that she was a woman of means, she leveraged her personal resources to make sure the ministry of Jesus could happen so all the men disciples who were slowed on the uptake could figure things out slowly but surely. But Mary Magdalene and her posse were the people who actually supported the ministry and made sure it happened. And so this morning, I think if we're going to want to be people who see, does God exist? Is God at work? then I think what better example than looking at someone like Mary Magdalene, who I just think if we could follow in her footsteps, we would be an incredible, we'd be set. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 8, and we'll take a look at one of the disciples, Mary called Magdalene. All right. Luke chapter 8, verse 1, begins like this. So after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. Those were the boy disciples. But also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases were along with him. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's house, and Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means." So there's this whole posse that Jesus has where they come and they contribute um, and they wander around from place to place. There's the 12, and then there's these women, and there's Mary Magdalene. And I love it just to throw off. Who was healed from seven demons? You know, Mary. And it's crazy, like seven demons. Like I can't even get my head around what in the world that even means. But we do know like because of the way ancient writers work, like seven is like the most, is the whole number, the most complete number. I mean, so is the most complete version of, of, of de- demonic torment? I don't know. But can you even imagine having one demon, one little ounce of spiritual oppression? She had seven. She was totally crushed. She was totally crushed um, spiritually. And I don't know if you can, if you can resonate with demon possession, but I, I mean, I can't but I can definitely resonate with being crushed. I can definitely resonate with, being, with wrestling with anxiety, with wrestling with depression, with wrestling with feeling crazy and being crazy, and let alone if you take that you know, to all the other extremes. Well, Mary was this extreme case, this an extreme case where she was possessed by seven demons and Jesus interacts with her. Jesus shows up to her and heals her. Through his power, through his word, he casts out these demons and she is healed and changed and transformed forever. It's an incredible story. And what's wild is like for me, I, can, I do not resonate with the gutter to glory story. Like, man, I was a meth head and, uh, and I gave my body away to get more meth. Like that's not my story. It's people's story. 
But there are people in our church, there's people in the world who meet Jesus and their world is completely changed. Their lives are completely changed. This last week at youth group, Ben Z showed um, an I Am Second video. And I Am Second video are these basically these celebrities who are big time. They're gigantic in our culture. And they've had these experiences with Jesus where now they recognize, no, Jesus is first and I am second. And they showed this video of Brian Welch, who was one of the musicians of Corn, And he was those guys. He was this total meth head. I mean, he went about as far off the rails as you could go. And Jesus met him and changed him and transformed him forever. It is an incredible story. Now, like I said, it's not my story. I was not a, I didn't have a dramatic Turner Burns story. I had a very slow, slow, slow change and slow transformation that God is slowly day in and day out having his, his way with me. But what's so great about the body of Christ is there's a whole wide variety of people in variety of ways in which Jesus encounters us, Jesus meets us, and Jesus changes us. And if we want to be people who think back and reflect and can recognize the work that God is doing in us and has done in us. Now, what makes Mary's story unique is not so much that she had demons um, cast out of her. Jesus did miracles all the time. What makes Mary's story so incredible, why she's like one of my heroes, why I think she should be one of our heroes, is not because of what Jesus did for her, but it's the way that she responded after that happened. Plenty of people were, were healed, but Mary was one of the people who said, okay, you are my Lord You are my savior. You are the person who I'm going to walk with and follow and give my resources to and to the ends of the earth. So much so that she becomes one of the main people in Jesus's life. I couldn't even imagine, like Jesus knows everything. And you know that even as a a human, he knew something like when he called the disciple Nathaniel, you know, he, he could read Nathaniel's mind a little bit. And so I think Jesus had some sense of he knew something about people, but I just think of the joy that Jesus must have had when, when he sees Mary, this woman who's tormented by demons, and he heals her, knowing not just that he's healing her, but that he is now creating a great friend, a ministry partner, someone who would minister to him for the rest of his earthly ministry. Gosh, what a joy that must be. So Mary experienced personal transformation, and that's great. But it's the next part that I think is so powerful and something for us to learn from. So if we're going to keep going on in Luke, we're going to turn to the end of Luke, Luke 23. So Mary's story gets lost a little in the middle, but there's a lot that we can infer by the end of, her sto- of, the, by the, end of the story, and it happens near the end of Jesus' life. So here we are in Luke chapter 23, starting with verse 47. The centurion, played by noble J.L. earlier today, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. And when all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw them took place, they beat their breasts and they went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. So this happens right at the end of the crucifix, crucifixion, right? Jesus is executed in the most brutal way that humans could devise at that time. That's how Jesus was executed. And everyone took off. All the boy disciples, they scattered. They took off and they were gone. And at the end, at that moment, at the moment, so that means during the crucifixion, during the execution, it was this group of women who stood there and watched, who stood there and through their empathetic eyes tried to give some sort of comfort, some sort of way that we are with you in that moment. It says, but those women who knew him, including the women who had followed him. So if you go back just um, to Mark chapter 15, it says this, some women were watching from a distance. And I love Mark, he adds a little color. Among them were Mary Magdalene, 
Mary, the mother of James, the younger of Joseph, and Salome. I don't know how that's how you pronounce it or not. But in Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women had come up with him from Jerusalem who were also there. It was these women, but they weren't generic women. It was Mary Magdalene, who's written before Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then later on in Luke chapter 23, verse 55, it says this, The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. Then they went home and they prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath and obedient to the commandment. And I just think what an incredible picture because Mary, not only was she transformed by Jesus, but Mary was in close proximity to Jesus. Now, if you've ever been to a wedding or a funeral, where you sit, where the mother is, like she gets pole position. And whoever's next to the mom, like they're legit, right? They're the people who are the inner sanctum of whatever's going on in those sort of events. You know, it's interesting, like for weddings, um, weddings are how like you, you get a strata all your friends, right? Because you get married and then you have your best man or your maid of honor, and then you have the groomsmen, and then the people who didn't make the cut are going to be the ushers, and then you have the people who... And then like, the, like the, your distant like cousin gets to like sign the guest book, right? And then everybody else gets to come and then there's people who don't come. So it's like this perfect way. Like if I have to list out my friends and if I'm not making it clear, then I make it clear by where they sit at the reception. And we do, we have to be, there's a way in which we help our friends know where they fit into our lives. It's, it's human nature. Well, Mary was in the inner sanctum. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there at the crucifixion. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was the one who went and prepared the body for burial. That's like the most intimate part of the entire thing. All the boy disciples took off, but it was Mary and these other women who were there at that moment, at the most intimate and awful moment of existence, and they were together in proximity to Jesus. What I think is so incredible about this idea of being in proximity to Jesus is when we're close to Jesus, we actually get to experience the movement of God. We actually get to experience the things of God. We actually get to see God at work and God doing these things. A lot of times we think, oh, God's not here. God's not alive. God's not doing that. And usually it's because we're just watching Netflix for too long. But if we actually stop, if we actually think, God, where are you at work? And I'm going to be in proximity to you and to your people, maybe, just maybe, I'm going to see you at work. And what's incredible about this story with Mary is she got to be so close to all the things that God was doing. But Mary wasn't just someone who soaked up all the goodness of God. It wasn't someone who just was like, yes, I love free loaves and fishes. This is so good. I love being around Jesus. She was someone who was an active contributor to the ministry of Jesus. Her proximity to Jesus was not just for her own fulfillment, was not just for her own goodness and her own you know, healing, but she recognized that she was part of the ministry of God, the ministry of Jesus, and something that I think we have something to learn from as well. So Mary, um, she was experienced transformation. Mary was close to the uh, proximity of Jesus. And there's one last part that I want to take a look at. So if we have Luke chapter 24. So at the very end, that was... Um, you know, Jesus was crucified, he's put in the tomb, and then on Sunday morning, on Easter, this is the story. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Those women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus. There they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes um, that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? For he is not here, 
For remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners to be crucified and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of Jesus, and the other women who told the apostles. And for us, we think, oh, great, that's the story. The the women were there, Jesus wasn't there, and they went back and told the, the apostles. But what an incredible statement that is, that Mary Magdalene, one of Jesus' just most closest friends, the person who probably just ministered to his heart, who was with him through his whole ministry, who was there offering compassion and empathy at his death, and then wanted to go to the tomb and finish up the, the work, was the very first person to recognize and realize that the resurrection had happened. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. For those of us who are Christians and Christ followers, that is the center of the gospel. It is a weird teaching. Most people cannot get their head around it. I get it. It is weird. So we just have to own it. It's weird. It doesn't make sense. But the resurrection, God becoming human, becoming a sacrifice for our sins, dying and rising again is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection didn't happen, then our preaching is in vain. We're just good self-help people. But it's the resurrection that proves that all of who Jesus was and said was real. It is the resurrection that offers us life, true life, from, uh, away from sin, healing away from sin, and life everlasting. And Mary Magdalene was the very first person on the scene. Not only was she the first person on the scene, she got to be the first herald. She got to be the very first person to speak, to tell the good news that Jesus had ridden, has risen. That was her honor. And it was funny because over 2,000 years of the patriarchy, that could have been written out a thousand times. That could have just been smudged out a thousand times. But maybe Jesus and maybe the people of Jesus recognized the unique thing that God has for all humanity. And Jesus had a unique vision for women and what women could be and should be. And the disciples had a unique vision of who women could be and should be and wanted to make it clear that Mary Magdalene, this dear friend of Jesus, got to have the distinct honor of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to the whole world. And I think for all of us, no matter how much you've experienced, no matter where you are in your cynic, skeptic, um, seeker pathway towards Christ, I think if we, if we could put on the mantle of Mary Magdalene just for this week and think, God, do I see you at work? Are you at work? And that's, the, that's the, my starting point that I'm going to enter in and see what is going on. And so for us to do that, I think there's three questions that I'd love for us to ask. One is, have you experienced the work of God? And what's incredible is, Almost every single person I've ever talked to in my entire life, the answer is yes. Like if you just sit and you're quiet and you think back to your entire life and you think, man, there was that time in second grade and I was really scared and my family was fighting and whatever and I prayed to you, God, and you kind of gave me peace. But I thought, what does a second grader know? And so I kind of threw that away. And then in 17, you did this thing, right? And we have these different things where, we've got, where you prayed and we ask God to show up and then he kind of shows up, but then life keeps getting complicated and hard and we kind of discard that. But what would it be like if we actually pause and we recognize that God is at work in us, that God has actually changed us and transformed us? We need to remember who we were before God had his way with us. We need to remember what path that God has brought us along. We have to remember those times, those watermark moments where God actually showed up and we experienced his presence. 
I grew up Presbyterian. I'm not Pentecostal. I'm not a big Holy Spirit person. But you know what? Even for me, who's Presbyterian and doesn't experience God in the, in the ways I feel like Christians should experience God, this last week I reflected, and you know what? There was, I had four times in my 43 years of life where I'm like, oh my goodness, God showed up. When I was in fourth grade at camp, and I, my heart was all warm towards God, and I wanted to become a Christian, and I felt like, oh my goodness, God showed up for me. When I went to uh, Olympia and my son had, was sick and he was diagnosed with E. coli and we had to go to Seattle Children's Hospital and I threw this huge temper tantrum with God because I'm like, that's it. If you take my son, I'm out. And I just, I freaked out. And God showed up and kind of rebuked me. It was brutal. That was not so much of a good one. Um, <laughs> when I came back here, this is awesome. Modesto was a spot where God showed up for me. I came back uh, and I came here to Marine Covenant and we were at a ministerial and it actually God used art. He was praying over me at a, this covenant pastor thing. And, and God used art to speak words of health and affirmation and reaffirmation of my calling when I was kind of all jumbled a little bit. And then this last summer, we got to go to Israel and we were traveling through the desert um, out, um, outside of Jericho and between Jericho and Jerusalem. And oh my goodness, God showed up. He spoke to me through the desert. And what God has done through people in the desert is he prepared them for new seasons of ministry. And I'm not even a yabba dabba do person. But the Holy Spirit showed up. God's presence showed up. And if we can be quiet and we can reflect, we can remember and see that God has shown up for almost everybody. And if not, then maybe we need to put on seeker seeker glasses. So one is, have you experienced the work of God? The second is this, that we must stay in close proximity to Jesus. We would love if Jesus did huge and dramatic things all the time. Because he, he did that in Scripture. But if you read through Scripture, you know there's 40 years of nothing, and then he did a big dramatic thing. And then there's 15 years of nothing, and then he did a big dramatic thing. And so the things that God does are usually pretty subtle and pretty quiet and pretty subversive. But we have to stay close to Jesus. We have to stay close to the people of God. We have to get off of Netflix. That's why we come to church. That's why we gather and worship. We sing songs, and we rehearse the truth, and we remember, oh, that's right, God, you do love me. Oh, God, that's right, you are the king. Oh, that's right, God, you have this thing for me. And even if we're struggling, we stand next to the next to people, and we go, oh my goodness, even though I'm down the dumps and I'm in the dark night of the soul and I can't imagine God doing something, I look around and I see, oh my goodness, there's so many people that I know here who God has dramatically touched and changed. And so I need to be near them to be reminded of what God is doing. And even more so, we need to be near the presence of God and so that we can actually be a part of doing the work of God. And lastly, just like Mary Magdalene, I think God has invited us to the distinct honor to be people that get to tell others about the good news of Jesus. Now, this always feels awkward. How in the world do you tell the good news about Jesus? I tried it once. Where you stand on a corner and you interact with people as they walk by and you say, have you heard of the four spiritual laws or whatever? It doesn't go well. At least for me, it didn't go well. Because like I said, my first impressions aren't that well. But you know what's interesting is I don't think God longs for us to go and pro- proclaim that to the whole world, to people that we don't know. I think God longs for us to live with people and to share our lives with people. And if we're sharing our lives, then we're sharing what God has done in us and through us with the people around us. When we're sitting down over having a cup of coffee, think of all the different times that you get to interact with another human being, not talking about work, not talking about family, but you're just with a friend, having a cup of coffee or having a beer or having whatever. You're just like relating and you're hanging out. 
Well, what if in those conversations you added um, something like this? This is kind of silly and it's, it's too wooden, so it wouldn't work for us. But in the covenant tradition, there's a there's statement that says, you know, how goes your walk is how the 18th century uh, pietist would say it. You know, how goes your walk? Which means when you're interacting with someone, when you're hanging out with people, part of your conversation is, what's going on with you and the Lord? How, how are things with you and God these days? And, and talking about your spiritual life, your spiritual journey. And when you do that, you know, part of what comes up is you get to share about the dark night of the soul. You get to share about your anxieties. You get to share about your depressions. And as you share those things, someone gets to walk with, the, walk with you in that. Someone gets to remind you of, oh my goodness, but remember three weeks ago when we prayed about this, this, and this, and how God showed up. And we get to be in the habit of rehearsing and telling others of the things that God has done in our life. And so I think if we want to be people who see God at work, then we have to take on the mantle of Mary Magdalene, just an incredible disciple of Jesus Christ who had her life dramatically changed by Jesus. She was someone who not only had her life changed by Jesus, but she made sure that she was at the feet of Jesus day in and day out. Even when every one of the other disciples bolted and scrammed, she made sure she was there to offer Jesus comfort and support all the way at the end. And even more so, she got the distinct honor of telling others about the good news of Jesus' resurrection. Because of her testimony, the disciples believed. Because the disciples believed, they told other people because of other people, other people, other people, other people. Until thousands of years later, we are here. We are here because people faithfully encountered Jesus and told us about him. And now that gets to be our mantle as well. So here's the spiritual practice that I would love for us to challenge, to, to try on this week. Would you simply pray this? Will you, Jesus, give me eyes to see? Like I said, we all have um, biases. We all have biases. But what if for one week we tried to have the bias of a seeker? God, show me where you're at work. Jesus even says, if you seek, you will find. Okay, Jesus, show up. Where are you at work? Give me eyes to see. And to simply consider, where have you experienced the work of God? If you've been someone who's known and loved Jesus for a long time, maybe you just need to do some reflective work and think of all of the ways that God has been faithful to you, who has showed up for you, who has healed you throughout your entire life. And you start collecting that list and you put it on by your mirror on your bulletin board or somewhere that you can be reminded because not every day feels like, a, feels like six flags, you know? There's a lot of hard days in there. So we need to remember when and where God showed up so we have strength when things aren't there. And the other thing is, would you simply share that with another person? We are so bad at articulating what God has done in us and through us. So we just need people to practice with. We need pr- people to practice talking about real things, spiritual things, the work of God things. And as we get in the habit of seeing it and telling others, then I think our biases are going to be more and more confirmed. And not just so that we're good religious people, but so that we will be people who will be so intimately involved with the Savior of the world that we will be transformed, and even more that we'll be transformed, that we will be people who can be used for God's glory, both now and forevermore. Amen and amen.